back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I interview all sorts of creative people about writing music. In this episode I talk with filmmaker and songwriter Jason P. Schumacher about film scoring, making music videos, and pyramid schemes. But first, some announcements. This episode was brought to you by my wonderful listener patrons and by my sponsor, lynda.com. Linda is an online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you improve your creative and technical skills. For a free 10-day trial, go to lynda.com quest. And Linda is spelled L-Y-N-D-A. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. Ben Taggart is a game developer and composer in Monroe, Washington, and he's completed three Composer Quest quests. Thanks for being a patron, Ben. Thor Bremer is a composer in Chicago, and you're hearing his piece Skating right now. Check out more of Thor's music at thorbremer.com. Jacob Haller has been a super generous patron, contributing $8 per episode. You can check out Jake's many music projects and podcasts at jwgh.org. Jake, thanks so much, and here's an extra jingly jingle for you. It's a Jacob Haller jingle. Just a Jacob Haller jingle. It's not a new hit single. It's a Jacob Haller jingle. And if you're feeling blue, Jake's got a podcast for you to get you through the day. If you like young adult fiction, it's a Jacob Haller jingle. Just a Jacob Haller jingle. It's not a new hit single. It's a Jacob Haller jingle. Now let's get on to my talk with Jason Schumacher. I've collaborated with Jason on a bunch of projects over the years, including his feature-length film The Telephone Game and his recent short film that I scored, Sad Clown. I also recently helped Jason produce his first EP called Dumpster Baby, and we'll get to hear what inspired his songs, namely Cults, The First Huge Movie Star, and a baby being saved from a dumpster. Jason also gives some great tips on freelancing and being a good director. You'll hear us mention quite a few film scores in this episode. I have links to all of them so you can hear them at composerquest.com slash Jason. Jason? Is it rolling? Uh, Yep. It's rolling. (laughs) All right. Um, Jason, thanks for being here on Composer Quest. Um, yeah, it's, we've been friends for a long time now and working buddies on film projects and stuff. So, yep, risen up from the cable access uh, <laughs> days to yep being full time artists. Mm hmm. Living the dream. <laughs> yeah. So, um, one thing I think in this episode that'll be cool to talk about is like just in general like freelancing mm-hmm. and the lifestyle because you you've been composing music but film is your like number one thing you do normally mm-hmm. yep what's that been like 
freelancing for the past, like, I don't know, how long? 10 years? Yeah. <laughs> about, I mean, yeah, about 10 with odd jobs in between, but now it's just been strictly freelancing for the past bunch of years. It's kind of a wild west. Like it's you end up in a lot of different places with a lot of different people and a lot of random things. Just in the past year, or well, in the past two years, I got to you know travel around a bit. I got to go to the Ozarks and work on boating safety videos. I got oh. to bury an Academy Award nominated actress in the snow, <laughs> which was exciting and weird. Um, and I get introduced to lots of interesting, you know, nonprofits and just school programs or fundraisers or businesses or, you know, big and small. So I really like that about it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes you don't have any work lined up two weeks out and you get a little scared about your bills and you sort of just have to take the leap of faith that you're just going to keep waiting to work. Mm -hmm. And so far, fortunately, I do. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of... Like, weighing the pluses and minuses of it, it's hard for me to imagine going back to not freelancing mm -hmm. and having a regular job, just because working on your own time, for the most part, is really nice. <laughs> yeah, it's great. You have to be... You still have to structure your time a little bit, otherwise you get distracted easily. Mm -hmm. If you're me, I don't know about you, but... yeah. No, I, I do too. Um, you still have to, if, if the project doesn't have a hard deadline, you kind of have to make one and, and stick to it and just be persistent. Mm -hmm. And with experience too, you kind of understand what you can realistically commit to, like what's actually possible. I think when I started, I just wanted to work and I committed to a lot of things and just kind of lost a lot of sleep sometimes if I got busy mm -hmm. because... You have a slow period, and you're like, oh, shoot, I'm scared, I need work. And then you just kind of agree to a ton of stuff, and then it's like, I haven't slept in a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's about finding that balance, too. Mm -hmm. How do you decide what to say no to? <laughs> oh, man. Sometimes it sounds cheesy, but sometimes you got to go with your gut. If the project, if it, if it doesn't sound like a project that aligns with what you want to do or, or your interests or values or whatever sometimes you just gotta say like maybe that's not for me or i you know sometimes i think maybe there's somebody else who'd be better for the job i'd rather pass it on to them because i think this is more aligned with their interests or their skill set mm -hmm. i'd rather have you know i i don't know i want when someone has a video for it to be the best thing it can be and if i'm not the person to do it then i might mm -hmm. as well not do it yeah well we were just kind of talking about this beforehand like deciding what your specialty is and like i was talking about how i think sound design is interesting but it's not necessarily my passion or my expertise yeah and spreading yourself too thin could be an issue right i really enjoy editing but it's something i kind of have a limited capacity for because you're sitting by yourself in a room going through lots of footage and so i like it i feel like i am a pretty good editor, but I also kind of have a cap at how much I can do before I'm like, I need to get out and be on set. Mm. And I want to interact with people and be making collaborative decisions. So yeah. I've kind of been limiting more of the editing that I take on and just trying to keep myself on set more. Yeah. I, I would say you're one of the most connected people around the Twin Cities in the film scene. Uh, 
yeah, you've gotten me a lot of gigs over the past few years. You're welcome. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what tips would you have for people who want to get into the film business, especially as composers? As a composer, I think as a freelancer and especially as a composer, I think it's good to specialize. I think it's good that you're specializing as a composer because you're like, that's what I want to do. I'm a composer. If you want to hire me, I'm a composer. Done. And so that tells me that you're you're committed to that. You're not running around doing on-set recording. You're not sound designing. You're not, I mean, you have done these things, which I think kind of gives you a sense of the whole project, which is good for composing. Mm-hmm. But sometimes just streamlining yourself and saying, this is the thing I'm going to get really good at. It looks good outwardly too to other people because then it sends a clear message and mm. people have a clear understanding of what it is that you can offer to their project. Obviously, you know, artists don't want to like box themselves too much in, but everybody's got their certain interests in like subset of interests. You know, I, I if you're saying I tend to arrange with these kind of things or these are my inspirations, these are the kind of projects I'm really excited about. Sometimes specialization's good in a way because it kind of puts puts that energy out, puts that vibe out that you're like, that's that's what I really care about. And then the peop- the right kind of people come to you, and it kind of mm-hmm. then you're both excited because they know you like whatever kind of music or or thing that they're trying to achieve. You're excited because it's the right project for you, and then everybody's happy, and it's kind of a good mm-hmm. experience all around. Instead of the opposite where you're Maybe you're trying to work in some realm that you're not as comfortable with, or you're don't really not as excited about. But you're like, well, I wanted the gig, and so you're just trying to like mm-hmm. force yourself in this thing, and mm-hmm. then you know it's it's just maybe not as fruitful. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's an interesting challenge. Sometimes yeah. it's just kind of it's just like an uphill battle, and you're like, why did I do this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I I think like at the start, it's okay to try out a bunch of things too related because like that is kind of how i got my foot in the door working with you because you needed someone to do sound editing for your film telephone game yeah and then it was only like later that you thought about asking me to do some composing same with when i've worked with dave ash Um, Mm -hmm. i got my foot in the door because i knew the technical side of sound mixing but Mm -hmm. But I, I think it can work both ways if you have good composing samples. And sometimes composing and sound design kind of interweave with each other. Sometimes the line is blurred. You start to do really tonal stuff, and it starts to be maybe more in the realm of design, but the composer's generating it. Or the sound designer's picking some kind of ambience, but it has a musicality to it, too. So that mm-hmm. relationship between sound designer and composer can be really interesting too of mm-hmm. where do i hang back and they step forward mm-hmm. where can i help the story with sound design and a score is maybe too much or where does where does the sound design need to be really minimal because there is a score that fills in the the mm-hmm. the space between the dialogue or sets the tone yeah so it's always it's kind of a dance and i think sometimes people underdesign and overscore in a lot of indie projects. Hmm. And I think yeah. if you can interweave them, that's like the the sweet spot. Yeah. There's some really interesting movies where like the sound design almost is the score. Like 
you know, you watch No Country for Old Men, and there's this like, barely kind of a score in that movie, but it's almost all sound design. Mm-hmm. And then you watch a movie from the 90s where <laughs> there was like all about the soundtrack release. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, hear all these songs that you remember sort of liking, but they're just all jam packed in there. You're mm-hmm. like, really? It's yeah. Another musical montage? <laughs> and so then it's, you know, if you try to like force music in there, sometimes it's just it's too much. Mm-hmm. What film scores have you been liking recently? A recent film score that I really loved was um, Beast of the Southern Wild. I just, I like that score a lot. It's like really triumphant and magical and it's just like, I don't know, the arrangement's really cool and the build and mm-hmm. it feels like even though it wasn't as big of a film, it feels kind of like in the realm of those iconic film scores, but mm-hmm. still works or something. Yeah. When the trumpets or the horn section hits, they're like in that theme. Just want to like throw your arms in the air. It's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I I love the Thin Red Line score and a lot of the scores that Terrence Malick uses, but particularly that one with the the mix of Hans Zimmer's like cinematic score and then the the choirs and chants that they mm-hmm. kind of interweave into that movie. Yeah, those mo- his movies seem like they're really a lot about the score. <laughs> Like yep. a new world or new world? Yeah, the new world. Yeah, that is a great it's... end song, too. Oh, I can't remember what the ending was like, but yeah, you like find out Pocahontas has died and John Smith's like way over here, and it's like all of a sudden the story just wraps up and there's just like this big, this great piece of music, yeah. kind of tying it all together. These like three different worlds. Hmm. Very classical style. Yeah, it might be a classical piece. I don't know, but... Yeah. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about is making music videos. Uh-huh. Because I th- feel like a lot of people listening probably uh, have thought about making music videos if they haven't already. Yeah. What's your approach, and what kind of music videos do you enjoy? Uh. To me, like, I definitely need to connect with the song in some way. And if somebody approaches me about it, a music video i listen to their song just on repeat over and over and over and over and i kind of think of like what images come to mind and is this a song i'm excited about does this generate ideas or not do i just am i just annoyed or can i keep like because ultimately if you're going to do a music video you're going to listen to that song a hundred plus times and you hear (laughs) it a lot because you're you know you shoot it over and over and over and then you edit it and work on that over and over so you're going to hear the song a lot so you better like it for one um and then it's just got to be like a band that i can work with where because they're artists too and they're gonna have ideas but i don't want to be just making somebody else's idea that's not that exciting to me Mm -hmm. so it's got to be this cool fusion where we can collaborate and you know mix our ideas together to make hopefully a third even better idea Mm -hmm. i did i did the song lee i appreciate your willingness to get involved for this band omni trigger and at first it was just going to be kind of a performance video, just seeing them perform. But then we started playing around with the ideas because it is this fast, energetic song of playing the song at half speed. And then so that when we played it back, everything is double time and really fast. Hmm. So their fast paced song feels even faster and more frenetic and energetic and like exciting. Hmm. Oh, that's a cool effect. 
I haven't seen that one, that video yet, but so I, I'd imagine like the drummer just looks like they're moving superhuman speeds sort yeah. of and like guitarists. Yeah. So like, yeah, it, you know, ultimately you want to like, uh, support the song and kind of bring a new layer to it. And mm-hmm. what about for people who have no budget or anything? Well, it gets tougher, but I mean, and I'm kind of past the place of doing that. Those no budget ones, but there's certainly a lot you can do on your own. There's a lot of fun experiments to try. There's GoPros. There's all kinds of weird stuff you can do with video on your phone. You can go rent a camera. You could make it without a camera at all, make something strictly from your computer using animation or... Mm -hmm. And editing is really key, too, of just, you know, matching up the energy of the song or kind of playing with it. And you don't want your edits to feel kind of out of time with what the music is doing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it kind of just feels like visuals slapped onto a song. Yeah. How much do you edit to beats in the music or go against that? It's weird. You never want to edit like right on the beat. It's kind of you're like a little right bit right before, a little bit after. So like the beat is kind of helping introduce you to these new images. Hmm. So I think, you know, there's a lot you can play with the rhythm of the visuals too. You could say, I'm going to hold on a shot for a measure. Now I'm going to hold on it for a half note. Now I'm going to hold on it for a quarter note. You can ramp up the video, even though the pace of the song has stayed the same. Hmm. I learned music before I learned how to edit. And I think that gave me a leg up in terms of being an editor. Is it just, I kind of knew when to switch shots or when it felt right, when the, where the beats were in a sequence, in an interview, in a whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was reading some stuff that Walter Murch wrote, um, the editor of like the conversation and, Mm. I think he did Apocalypse Now, too. Or, yeah. Uh, but he was talking about like how he he felt like he got to the point where when he would blink like while watching something, then... Or maybe it was when the actors would blink. <laughs> that was like a time to edit. Or so, it had something to do with blinking, but I thought that was kind of oh. interesting. There's a lot of thoughts about blinking in acting school, too. Yeah? I won't get into that, but... <laughs> uh. I don't well, know. Well, what, like what? <laughs> oh, just that, uh, you know, a strong character doesn't blink. Or, like, mm. you, you know, act, a, good, a really good actor will start to, to blink if they're supposed to be nervous or they're supposed to be weaker. Like, if you, oh, what is it? There's a movie called The Ides of March. And, like, nobody blinks for, like, the first 85 minutes of the movie. <laughs> and then the end, when one of the other ones backs the guy into the corner... And kind of calls him out, and there's the conflict. Then he starts blinking. Whoa. So Weird. Huh. Uh, why I know this? I don't know. <laughs> but. That's cool. <laughs> so I think maybe another thing that you do that could relate to composers is your directing. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times, like, as a, well, composer and producer, I guess more, sometimes more the producer side, how do you get the performance out of an actor that you're looking for? And like critiquing, that's the tough thing. Like sometimes it's hard to know exactly what to say. Yeah. It's, um, 
Yeah, it is like scoring in a way where it's, I mean, almost like a conducting. You've got to kind of like pull more out of it here and push it back here. And sometimes it's there's just mechanical things you have to figure out in terms of blocking. And sometimes, like in music, the blocking kind of helps the emotional part. So like, it's better to give an actor something to do. People, so they're not just standing with their hands at their sides and yeah, and so sometimes just you know standing up versus sitting down. It doesn't need to be as deep as like dig into your the things you talk about with your therapist to like invoke all these deep emotions. Sometimes it's a matter of like, well, what happens when you sit down? You stand up. What happens if you know you're not looking at the person when you say the line? There's a huge. There's a world of difference in that. Hmm. in proximity to the person there's so there's a lot of kind of sociological things you can consider stuff like that's a little easier to communicate because it's very specific so you say like well what if you you do this or what if you kind of come here what if you bring the what if you slow it down here and then a, a skilled actor will find a way to motivate that emotionally too why would he slow down the pace of what he's saying here okay maybe it's because he now thinks about this because this relates back to this other thing. Um, also just setting up a good space for the actors to work in, hmm. setting up a good scene, setting up some good props around them. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola says one of the ways he likes to direct is just put, instead of telling the actor exactly what he thinks about this character, put props around them that tell them that and see what they do with them. Hmm. So I guess from like a, logistical or i don't know if this is logistical but like just making sure the actors and or the musicians are happy just by like feeding them treating them nicely and, yeah. If, if, yeah if 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 i can teach anyone anything in the arts if you can't pay people you got to feed them and even if you do pay them like make sure they have access to good food cuz it'll it'll show in the final product <laughs> they'll be happier they'll work harder and yeah. You know, people like good food. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's worth the extra investment. Mm-hmm. We have kind of a barter system going on, you and I, because like you help me with video stuff, I help you with sound. Oh, don't and tell too many music that. stuff. <laughs> well, the uh, I mean, just in general, though, it's like nice to if you don't have a budget for things, maybe like yeah, figure out a way if you trust someone that you're working with and right. Well, I've definitely tried to barter with people where I did the thing and then nothing happened. (laughs) So it's got to be kind of people you know you're going to keep working with Mm -hmm. and who you trust and who you, you know, are friends with or, Mm -hmm. you know, you just got to hold up your end of the bargain and and communicate really. Like just talk about your expectations, what you want for this project, what you're hoping to get out of it, what you can give back if you're going to barter. It's got to have that open dialogue. Maybe write it down so there's no confusion. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's good. Any other freelancing tips that you would have for people? Don't undersell yourself. I've seen a lot of, you know, and I did this too, is you, you want to work and so you sometimes undervalue your work. And obviously when you're starting out, you got to be an intern, you got to be a PA, you got to run around and try things and learn and, and that's valuable. But at a certain point, you have to kind of make some decisions for yourself that when you're like, man, I did all this work and I still can't pay my bills, then okay, maybe we got to rethink things. 
mm-hmm. and there's expenses mm-hmm. to everything and and working in media obviously there's a lot of expensive expenses like computers and cameras and mm-hmm. microphones mm-hmm. when you're uh working on a film how do you decide where to place music I mean, there's a lot of different things that music can do. It can kind of set the mood. It can introduce a character. It can kind of bridge some scenes or, and even create contrast. You know, like in the telephone game, we had a song or a scene that I felt without score, it felt too serious. But then we kind of put a pop song on in the background and then suddenly it felt like a different scene. You know, these, these comments they were making felt a little funnier the dry humor came out a little more and it kind of lifted the scene a little bit Hmm. yeah that's a good question sad clown really like you have music to introduce you into the world of the film at the beginning and then there's no music until the first flashback and then that establishes the relationship. And then you see the relationship fall apart. So then that music piece of music reprises, but with a different arrangement. And so that right there creates a contrast between the two scenes, but it also relates them because the melody is similar, but the pace and the instrumentation is a little different. And then, well, the way we did it in Sad Clown is really interesting because only the intro and the flashbacks really get music. The only time that there's a music in the present day scene is the introduction. And then when it's supposed to sound like it's coming from the space. So it's actually a part of the scene. So then it kind of, I guess the score kind of added this nostalgic, magical air to the flashbacks. Yeah, I didn't even really think about that as I was scoring. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's... But if but it felt naturally to cue it that way. And sometimes it's just really intuitive. You kind of, you watch a movie and you f- just feel where the music should come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and sometimes you put music in there and it's too much and you got to hold it back or you you make the cue later or earlier or yeah um you know yeah, we we cut pieces of music from the telephone game too because there was like too too many cues at certain mm. points and you're like well what yeah. if what if we did it more in sound design because you were sound designing yeah that piece and we we cut out something that was composed where I thought there needed to be music but then there was just a lot of music that started to get schizophrenic because it was just a lot of different things happening. And, and so we designed, you know, you, you came up with a, almost like a ticking watch. I remember in oh, one part, yeah. like a timer that kind yeah. of accelerates the thi- thing, but it's, it wasn't music. It was just like a, a sound, mm-hmm. but it still does the thing that scoring sometimes needs to do. Set a pace, set a rhythm, set a, a feeling. And just by adding a ticking watch, you give this sense of urgency or like, Things are moving forward and what's going to happen when the buzzer goes off. We had a lot of good actors there just going.
go through, yeah, pick your five of, favorites. Pretty and faces, a lot of, a lot of stories, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. good people that woke up in the morning and came to my audition, said my words. Our audition. They all were professional. They had headshots stapled to the backs of their resumes, but nobody got it. Nobody got what the words meant. It was, it was almost embarrassing. Did you feel that it was kind of embarrassing? I felt like it was an audition, but. I feel like another thing I've learned over the years of trying film scoring and watching films is like often the music should come after a major emotional moment. Yeah, not during. Yeah, not during it. Yeah, it's like you have to experience it as it is, Mm -hmm. as realistically as possible maybe, and then process it later when the music comes in. Yeah. Well, I think it's kind of how the brain works as we experience a thing. I mean, we don't really know exactly what it means to us yet, but it kind of slipped into our subconscious, and then we go back and we reflect on it. Yeah. I also feel like um, I've noticed that listening to podcasts, too, <laughs> like uh, This American Lifestyle podcasts, like where I'll listen back to th- figure out, like, oh, that was a really powerful scene. When did the music come in? Uh-huh. And then it's like always way later than I expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. I like that kind of music too that sneaks up on you sometimes. Sometimes it's great when the music, you know, it's like opening big brass doors into this new world or something and it just comes in and there it is. But sometimes mm-hmm. it's cool when it kind of sneaks up on you and, you know, it don't, you don't really realize it's there. Mm-hmm. I think a great movie scoring like thing to do is you've seen the movie Legend, right? Early I am Scott? legend. No, or no. Oh God, no. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't bring up I am legend. <laughs> that piece of garbage. Uh, uh, no, I haven't seen legend. legend. It's like Tom Cruise's first movie. It's early Ridley oh. Scott fantasy world. But Jerry Goldsmith, great composer, composed a whole like beautiful orchestral score. It's a fantasy movie, and it's an incredible score. But Ridley Scott panicked. Producers panicked. Whatever they thought. Nobody's going to get on board with the fantasy movie. Maybe we need a more contemporary score. So they had Tangerine Dream rescore the whole movie like two months before its release. Hmm. And so I originally saw the movie with the Tangerine Dream score, but then I went and watched it with the Jerry Goldsmith score. And they feel very different. They're both cool. They're both good. Hmm. You kind of feel bad for Jerry Goldsmith because he made this (laughs) masterful piece of work that they're just like, nah, I'm not going to use it. (laughs) Which apparently has happened to him several times in his career. No, no. <laughs> Same thing happened with 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. Because Kubrick had placed all these temp scores in right. of the actual classical pieces. And uh-huh. then he loved them too much. <laughs> and when Alex North, the composer, tried to recreate those in his own way, yeah, Stanley Kubrick was like, nah. Yeah, don't think so. (laughs) So they have the whole score of that available, like as a soundtrack. But it's just probably too hard once you have heard the temp score so many times. Like, has that happened to you, where you just like get too in love with the music you place in temporarily? And I don't know if that's ever happened to me specifically, because in Sad Clown we did use classical pieces that you then rearranged. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So I think it, it took a so, little getting used to when you're introducing me to new stuff. It was still had the vibe of what I'd put in there temporarily, but sometimes they got very different and I was like, I don't know. But then, <laughs> you know, after I kind of got used to it, it felt right and was the right thing. So then it was just kind of like letting go of the temp score. Yeah. I wonder if it happens more when people edit to their temp score. Because, like, maybe you had the edit already kind of figured out, and then... We mostly had the edit figured out. I gave the editor some of the songs, but he mostly kind of edited the scenes intuitively. And then I dropped the temp score in mostly for some film festival submissions that I was trying to submit a rough cut to, and I didn't want to leave it just dead with no music. Mm -hmm. So I guess it was less edited to the temp scores, too. So maybe that helped. Yeah. I know that happens a lot in films. You know, you read about like Wes Anderson and David Lynch having to up their post budget by tons of money because they have to license this pop song because they just like, well, we edited to it and it's, it has to be there. Like, can't be anything else. Okay. <laughs> I don't have $20,000 to like license my favorite pop song. So I yeah. unfortunately never really, or I just get never really think that way, I guess. Yeah. I think about my friend's music and creating original stuff. Mm -hmm. so. You've done a little bit of film scoring, I, at least. Um, I remember for your 48-hour project, where oh, yeah. you did everything. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. So for context, yeah, there's a 48-hour film race um, that happens nationally, and that's you get 48 hours to make a short film and you're prompted by a genre and other elements you have to include. So one year I got really cocky and decided I was going to make one all by myself. I acted, I shot, I lit, I edited, wrote, scored everything. So yeah, I did, I did do the scoring <laughs> too. And the concept is that you're hanging out with your twin brother. Yeah. And we're in a band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plot twist, we're triplets. <laughs> the third <laughs> <knee> shows up. <laughs> what did you do for the scoring of that? Uh, I I just um, programmed synth stuff in GarageBand. Because, yeah. you know, I was on a time crunch. and just made up a bunch of melodies and played with the synths they had in there. Mm -hmm. Used some default beats. Do you have advice for people who have maybe filmmakers who are listening who have never tried doing music stuff, music production? I mean, if it's something they're interested in, they should definitely give it a whirl, you know? Pick up a keyboard or just try to play with layering garage band samples on top of each other and see what happens. It kind of gives you an idea, too, of how a song's broken up once you start to kind of build the layers yourself. Mm-hmm. I think it's a fun experiment too to just like listen. I when I write, I listen to a lot of music, and that's almost like the first temp score. Is I think about like what kind of music might be in this movie, and I, I've heard a lot of other writers write this way, and I know David O. Russell does this, and sometimes that's kind of a good exercise too to think about music and your film at that very early stage. Hmm. You know, you might score it completely different than that music. But there might there just might be things that invoke a feeling in you or that remind you of something or that set a pace hmm. that come out in the writing. Because writing has rhythms too and sort of like a piece of music. Mm -hmm. It's got to ebb and flow. It's got to be consistent but different. It's got to, you know, 
kind of kind of take you on a journey. Can you think of an example when you did that, like writing a script and thinking of the music? Yeah. I listen I mean I listened to a lot of that classical music when I was doing Sad Clown and I listened to a lot of just like old pop songs kind of from the 50s era which Sad Clown loosely takes place in. For the telephone game when I was conceiving of the story and then when I was kind of editing and forming because it was an all improv based film forming what the dialogue should be. I had a lot of different music in the background, classical music, Fellini soundtracks, M83 stuff, which ha- mm. has a cinematic mm-hmm. vibe to it. Yeah, I don't know if I have any direct examples, but a lot of times I make up like the fake 90s movie uh, soundtrack <laughs> to the <laughs> nice. to the film when I write it. See what I did there? Kind of brought it back. To yes. Me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Time to break in with a little promo for lynda.com. Since we've been talking about creating film soundtracks, I thought I'd share a little snippet of a Linda course taught by Jason Bentley, DJ and music supervisor for films like The Matrix and Tron Legacy. Here's Jason talking about his work as a music supervisor. I usually pitch um, three, four different ideas to the director for a particular scene. Um, I don't want to pitch too many things because you almost want to guide the director. So you, you've really got to go in um, pre-clearing a lot of these ideas because the problem is, is that if, if you play something and the director loves it, then you're you know, screwed because it's something called temp love. And oftentimes directors and their personalities, they just they don't want to hear no. And so they'll get stuck on something and they'll just be trying so hard because they like that idea. So don't play it to them. Don't show them unless you can clear it. Lynda.com offers a huge variety of on-demand video courses from seasoned professionals like Jason. For a free trial, visit lynda.com slash quest. L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash quest. Now back to my talk with Jason Schumacher. We should probably talk about Dumpster Baby. <laughs> yep. Your EP. Yep. <laughs> Where did Dumpster Baby come from um i wrote a lot of music in high school and after high school and some of those songs that i wrote then got kind of remixed into dumpster baby some of the riffs but then i changed the lyrics because of course you know stuff you write in high school sounds kind of whatever you know and so part of it was taking music that I had already written and almost remixing it. Of course, sometimes literally, sometimes literally. (laughs) Yeah. We, we sampled some of those old things and they're in there in little, little snippets and secret spots. So in that sense, it almost has like a hip hop album approach of like remixing older things, but they were old things from my, you know, learning how to write music. And there were lyrics that I had written before that then I was like, oh, that actually works with this melody. And then some of my wrote new lyrics. I was like, oh, well, this is what this song feels like to me now. It feels like it should be about this. Mm-hmm. And then they all kind of took a sort of cynical, cynical undertone, <laughs> <laughs> comically mm-hmm. dark, dark comedy. Something big, especially uh, as kind of cynical 
mm-hmm. a little bit about a cult or what was your thoughts with that song yeah i was thinking about cults <laughs> just like you know some people do over their morning coffee <laughs> yeah I, I think cults are fascinating i think the way groups form into either healthy or very unhealthy ways in like a cult you know there's obviously like all kinds of organizations that were they pushed to it a polar extreme they would be a cult and it's like a fine line of what we kind of accept what we don't accept right out of high school so maybe this gives you a little backstory to my cynicism right out of high school i was looking for a job i hadn't picked a college yet and i got talked into a pyramid scheme by my piano teacher so someone who taught me a lot someone i trusted (laughs) kind of talking is i'm still embarrassed by it but it's still something i think about so it kind of came out in this song what did you have to sell it will whatever crappy energy bars i don't remember (laughs) like it was it was a weird time it's too bad confusing confused youth gets pulled into pyramid scheme so anyway, so stuff about that filtered into something big. Because pyramid schemes feel like a cult, by the way. If you ever get into one. <laughs> uh, it's like, we... This kind of businessman mantra, but it starts to get weird and kind of slimy feeling after a while. Huh. Like, Wait a second. Weird. How, so, what was your breaking point of like, this is too weird and I'm losing money and <laughs> yeah my girlfriend dumped me and i didn't have any money oh, like no. i wasn't actually making any money and yeah uh i was like had saw the light <laughs> so there's a lot of like little hidden things in the production yeah i feel like with this song well like the track starts out with recordings from high school your jam session yeah it was a, like a college session me and a couple friends were hanging out and we didn't have much to do except drink <laughs> and uh we're like well, well now what are we gonna do um and so we decided we we're gonna record a jazz album <laughs> for some reason and uh i had this old microphone that sounded you know from like the 40s or 50s just naturally it added like this weird kind of canned reverby sound so we started playing with that and seeing what we could say into it that sounded like words but wasn't actually words like a very old recording and that's you kind of mumbling some stuff yeah i think i'm saying something about city living or something yeah it's just like <laughs> not words yeah but kind of words mm-hmm. i wanted something big to have all of these kind of disparate things kind of floating all over but then kind of coming together in one thing like a cult might try to do with <laughs> uh lost people or something mm-hmm. take all these distorted and disconnected stuff and just force them together to be conform into a pop song or something Mm -hmm. i don't know
there's also the layers of Nathan Elliott singing on top of what you're singing. Yeah. Of like assimilate, he sings that. Yep. And you wouldn't really catch that if you were on the first listen, I, I don't think. Right in, drink, punch, stay in touch, stay in touch. Yeah, <laughs> that part. And some of that melody stuff Nate came up with, which was great. What's your process for writing lyrics? Sometimes I'll just have a lyric that I really like, and I don't know where it comes from. It's just like. I'll hear a word that I haven't heard in a while, and so it sticks with me. And then I'm like, man, that's a good word. And and then I try to build, or like, then I think of stuff that rhymes with it. And then suddenly that kind of makes a little saying that I like. And then sometimes it just grows out from outward from there hmm. to say, okay, well, I want, this sounds like part of a song. What else would be in a song with a lyric like this? Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of grows outward. For Secret Selves, I'm so lonely, you're the only one I've known, was the first lyric that came up. So lonely, you're nice. the only one I've known. So it has some internal nice like internal rhyme. rhymes. And it just felt simple and clean, but it said a lot to me. So, yeah, then I just built a song outward from that lyric. Hmm. Same with Dumpster Baby, If You Live Long, You'll Be Strong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, Which that's... says a lot in a very, very few words. And that's that's one of the great things about both song lyrics and about good dialogue in a movie is you can say a lot with very few words. Hmm. Yeah, And in a movie, you've got the lighting and the space and everything else to support that dialogue you've got the actor in their face and in a song you've got the way you chose to sing it and you've got the instrumentation you've got the rhythm all to support that line it's interesting how in dialogue like a lot of times you have the person say um not exactly what they're thinking oh yeah but songs it's kind of the opposite usually like they're saying what what you feel like Mm -hmm. or exactly what you're thinking sometimes (laughs) right Unless you're doing a character song or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dumpster Baby, uh, was that inspired by It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? No, but I saw that episode after I thought of this lyric, because somebody mentioned that to me, but no. I originally thought of that lyric for the Sainted Devil riff, which is like a really crunchy, aggressive riff, and I was like, what... What sounds just terrible? (laughs) (laughs) 
and dumpster baby was the worst thing I could think of. (laughs) But that never really gelled together for me. And I started to play with the idea of it as a lullaby. And actually, everybody thinks it's such a sad song, but to me it's really happy. This baby who's left alone is saved. And in in my ideas that this baby is, is brought up and kind of taken from the bowels of hell and given a chance. And so that, to me, was a song about, you know, when you're so young or even maybe not, depending on where you live or whatever, your surroundings limit your choices. And, you know, if you're someone who's abandoned at the early stages of life, what does that mean for your future? You didn't really have a say. song sainted devil yeah Uh, do you want to explain the backstory to that sainted devil is the name of a rudolph valentino film and i don't even know if that film still exists because in the early silent film days there wasn't the idea of preserving these films really they weren't considered historical documents there wasn't home video and re-releases and digital remasters you know there was just depression era they needed film they needed the silver halloid or they needed whatever to keep making other films and a lot of them went away and rudolph valentino was a huge film star at the time one of the very first like big film stars that had fans and had a following well when he died it was really weird because you could see him in action on the screen and people didn't, there was no real cultural precedence for how, what to do with that. Do you go see the movie? Is that okay? Is that morbid? Is that weird? What does that mean? And his funeral was huge. Women committed suicide who who loved him and adored him. I mean, it was intense. Hmm. So I was thinking about that and thinking about kind of the light from your star kind of ringing out after the star has gone away to nothing and thinking about that idea of us, you know, we use that word star in entertainment and thinking about what that phenomenon might have been like at that time. What was it like working with me as a producer? Like, do you have tips for me oh. in working with you? <laughs> or no, so just working with someone in general. Oh, you need better s- snacks. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, working with a producer, I th- that was a. I think it was a good a- experiment because I don't. I hadn't really recorded something professionally. And I think some of the things we were trying were things that you'd never done. Like drum programming, for example. Yeah. Hadn't done that It's like, much. yeah, Charlie, you can drum program, right? <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah. assumed. <laughs> well, it should. It is actually really easy once you start doing it. But I was doing it a totally 
annoying and long way <laughs> where I'd like copy in each audio file, like each drum hit. Uh-huh. So that's a terrible way to do it. So now I figured out like how to use MIDI to just play MIDI notes and then trigger samples. So you don't have to like copy and paste tons of little uh-huh. drum hits. Oh, yeah, it's thinking back to when we were stranded at your house (laughs) during the snow day. Yeah. It's just like crazy amounts of snow here. Mm -hmm. I couldn't really go home. So (laughs) we hung out, wrote a song together. Yeah. Something You Won't Say. Yep, it's a good song. Did you have the lyrics sort of in mind for that already? Or did we just come up with them? I don't remember. I f- one of us said it's the melody that you had sounded like a road song, like a mm. song that you'd hear in the movie scene where like you the camera's looking at somebody's face looking out the window and they're driving and the road's ahead. I remember playing around with that idea of a road trip and maybe you know, a road trip that didn't go well and what images do you see when you're just like looking around the car and stuff like that and and what do those mean, you know, there's a cold cup of coffee, you know, that really says something. And I like the lyrics of I hate the snow when it's melting or mm-hmm. I hate the sun when it's setting, you know, mm-hmm. I don't and it being almost a breakup song or something, you know. It sounds yeah. like a breakup song. That just, you know, hating things ending and you know you get to the end of a road trip and you're like have this great journey that's behind you now and now it's over we both know this road so you turn up the radio not a word spoke since you asked me to take you home i hate the sun I like where there's a, a simple thing and then a bigger picture, and either and both are interesting. Yeah. There's the story, and then there's the story within the story. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, looking back, when I recorded it, I thought that the melody was too simple. So mm. I, like, jazzed it up a little bit. Whereas our original melody, when we were coming up with it, was a lot simpler and more repetitive yeah. lines, which you... We're sad that I changed. Ah, after we record that yeah. one. Because, yeah, I think sometimes I do that, where I just think something's too simple, so then want to make it more interesting to me. But that's only after I've listened to it already too many times. Yeah. Sometimes you got to go back to the simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about a lot of the famous movie scores. They're some of the simplest movie scores in terms of what the melody is. I mean, the arrangements are big and complicated probably, but... Yeah, I was just listening to famous movie scores, and you know, a lot of them are simple, but they're great because they're iconic and memorable, and it's 
that's always the weird thing with music is like, you know, there's only so many notes. How do you do new things with them? Mm-hmm. Or rehash old things. Yeah, like what, John Williams? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, I, I love John Williams, actually, but that is a good point. No, he does that a lot with uh, stealing themes from classical stuff. Right. Star Wars, like that whole score mm-hmm. is a, like, like taken from... remix, yeah. Mm-hmm. Holst's planets, like Mars. Have you ever heard that? Well, if you do, it's like exactly like that scene where they're gonna destroy the Death Star uh-huh. in A New Hope. It's like dun 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 dun, and then the Death Star explodes. <laughs> That's like straight from Gustav Holst. Hmm. Yeah, I was so, I was think I was thinking about this what some of my favorite film scores are and i like a lot of those like classic iconic ones but sometimes they're kind of like a pop song where you get you hear them too many times and you get sick of them and then you gotta go like listen to something weird and, or you know it's like having a piece of cake when you like need a a meal <laughs> or something it's just mm-hmm. like really satisfying but also kind of wears out fast or something hmm. i don't know that's interesting because yeah another guest described that as like like catchy melodies because mm-hmm. I asked him about if he had to listen to one of his songs on loop forever as <laughs> a video game composer oh, and um it's a good exercise for a video game composer. yeah um and he was talking about like how catchy melodies are kind of like sweet candy I thought you were gonna say sweet Caroline <laughs> <laughs> like least favorite song second oh, least that's terrible yeah Margaritaville is the least oh that one I I'm okay with sort of but <laughs> <laughs> well what's uh, your favorite song ever ever oh man or right now anyways lo fang does this really creepy cover of you're the one that i want from greece <laughs> oh. i just love that cover <laughs> instead of being you're the one that i want and it's like you're the one that i want and it's just so. like, it makes it like <laughs> It's like kind of sweet, but kind of eerie, and mm. it just—it's cool. I don't know. I like when someone does a really bizarre cover of something or something in just a different genre because it, it makes you think about the song in a new way. Mm-hmm. General creativity question: What do you do to get in the mood for creating stuff? Like, especially if you have to deal with like other projects going on at the same time. Yeah, sometimes it's just a change of scenery. Sometimes I just need to get out of the house or I need to play different music. I need to type in the most random thing I can think of into Pandora or Songza or something. Sometimes it's just a matter of like walking around the park and getting a cup of coffee and just kind of pondering what I was thinking about doing if I'm trying to write something or come up with a lyric or a story. And sometimes it's just good to walk away and come back, like sit and watch a movie and not say like, oh, this movie's going to really inspire me, but just like, all right, I'm just going to take in some new stimuli. I'm going to experience something else. And sometimes you'll see a really old movie and you're like, what would that movie look like right now if it was made, if that same script was made? You know, just think like, what would this song be if it was in a different genre? What would this be if it was a folk song? So sometimes, yeah, it's just kind of about... 
when you get hung up and stuck and your brain's just like stuck on one thing to just kind of let it go or switch it up. Mm -hmm. Anything else that I'm forgetting about to talk about with you? Do you have any favorite uh, movies moments or like with score movie score moments? Hmm. I think uh, there will be blood. Uh huh. Stands out to me still because the music is so unique. Mm hmm. Like compared to other scores lately, it's like very in front of everything. <laughs> yeah. In parts. There's a certain point when. I, and I think I've talked about the score on the podcast before, but he, it's like he does, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead did the score, and he kind of approaches it like traditional like motives mm -hmm. for different characters. But like there's a certain motive he uses that's like plucked strings. It's almost like that ticking clock idea yeah. that we were talking about earlier, just like getting keeping the momentum going. Right. It's like um, the derrigs being built or something. Yeah. Or like the oil bubbling up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then it becomes like the main character's like headstrong theme. Yeah. So like when he starts doing more and more crazy stuff, but he still feels like he's on the, right. on the path right. to... To success or something. Yeah. Yeah. You got, you got any other <laughs> I was thoughts? thinking about... I... Um, I made uh, my fiance when early in our dating watch Punch Drunk Love, and uh, the score where yeah. he's like at work and his yes. sisters are like all bugging him. That is, uh, she like couldn't oh. handle it. It was really <laughs> interesting. She just thought it was so weird and abrasive and like, and it was just like stressing her out. <laughs> and I'm like, but yeah, but that's what it's supposed to do. And yeah, like, yeah. So it was like really fun, and we had some really funny and fun conversations about that. I'm just yeah, that, now when I think of scores, I think of that because it's such. It's that, like that's another P.T. Anderson movie, but um, yeah, it's oh yeah, that I didn't even think about that same guy. Yeah, John Bryan did that score, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's one of my favorite scores ever too. And yeah, it's that scene you're talking about. It's kind of like percussiony, yeah, just random things very, that like, seem like they're not even a score. Sometimes yeah. it's like just weird sounds. Yeah, and then the sound design mixes in with the score, too, in a weird way. Or it looks like some of the sound effects are just really big because they feel big to the character or something. They stress them out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like a door op like a door opens and the forklift runs into something. And you're just like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> and you just, it's, it's like a rubber band or something being pulled too tight. And you're just like waiting for it to snap because it just keeps building and it just keeps mm -hmm. building and keeps building. And you never know when it's going to let up. That's um, one of my favorite scenes in any movie, I think. Yeah. Uh, everyone listening, if you haven't seen that, you yeah. definitely but on, have to look at that scene. Yeah. Well, on the flip side, it's got some of like, the sweetest, like nicest, loving, like sing-songy mm -hmm. stuff in it, too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a score I think about a lot. Um, one I thought about for Sad Clown, too, just in the way, just in the way it felt. Not really you know, any other way, but just that dreamy, but... I don't know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so while we're talking about P.T. Anderson movie scores, I was reading a behind the scenes of Boogie Nights, which is mostly pop songs, but there's some stuff from a composer. But like, supposedly he screened Boogie Nights for one of the guys from ELO, who does this song at the very end where you've seen Boogie Nights, right? Mm -hmm. Or Mark Wahlberg, he finally reveals his like giant 
penis, which is like sort of the MacGuffin of the movie, you know, or like what makes him a popular porn star or whatever. And he just like pulls it out at the end. And apparently P.T. Anderson screened this for one of the guys from ELO. And he was like sitting in the row in front of him or something. And he was all nervous. He's like, what is this guy going to think about this? This guy is like whips his junk out. And I'm like that's the end of the movie. And here comes the spoiler alert. Sorry if you haven't seen Boogie Nights. But what is he going to think? Like having his song associated with this? Is he even going to sign off on this? And apparently the guy from ELO like stood up in his seat when, the, when his song came on and was like so excited. Cause he was like, yeah, <laughs> thought it was so great. Oh so, man. That's funny. I, I don't think we can end the podcast any other way. Are you going to make that the ending? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> We uh, still have to have you ask a question for a future guests because we've I've started doing these question chains. Okay. And unfortunately, I don't have a question for you because our schedule got a little bit out of order. So, do you have a question that you would want to ask a future composer? When this can go for movie scores or for a song... What makes you decide to add or subtract instruments in the arrangement? When does it feel like too much or too little? Hmm. Speaking from a producer standpoint, I feel like if... And I've heard other producers say this, like... Think outside the box of, like, oh, song starts with solo guitar. Then, oh, drums come in and bass and then vocals and then... Mm -hmm. Maybe think about pairs of instruments mm-hmm. that come in together, exit together when other things come in. Yeah. Like from a production standpoint, sometimes you have to subtract things to make room yeah. for new things. Yeah, exactly. But well, how would you answer that? Sometimes when we were working on the Dumpster Baby EP, it would just feel like there needed to be something else. Like there needs to be something that kind of pops out in the low range or the high range just to fill it out or kind of punctuate something and that can be true in movie scoring too like it just maybe there just needs to be this high tone that bridges the gap and like maybe that's that instrument so maybe if we're gonna use that instrument there maybe we sneak it in a little earlier but then sometimes they're like you're like dead set on having this instrument in there and you're like what does it sound like without it and you mute it and it's better because mm-hmm. it leaves room for the other thing that you actually wanted to focus on. Mm-hmm. And that can be true of a lot of art and a lot of films and stuff. Sometimes you got to, they say, and this is maybe a good uh, allegory. Is that the right word? A good uh, metaphorical something for other <laughs> art forms. <laughs> Whatever. So when you're lighting a scene and you're not happy with the lighting, what you do is you start shutting lights off until you don't have any lights left. And then you start shutting them all back on and you, and you start kind of doing them in different ranges. But the first thing you do is you start, you shut them off one by one. You kind of look and you're like, okay, did I overlight this? Did I do too much? And, you know, that's, I think that can happen in production of film or music or something. Sometimes you just, maybe it's too much. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's, maybe it's simpler than you thought it did. You had this idea in your head, but maybe the simpler version of that idea is better. Maybe your idea is too simple. Maybe you need to blow it up and make it bigger. But sometimes simple is better. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Says the guy who That's... made something big. who has got like a million different things going on. <laughs> it. Uh, yeah. What about uh, new projects? 
I'm producing a film that you're going to score mm-hmm. called Twin Cities. It's the current title. Sort of a dark comedy drama about life and a marriage falling apart and illness and all kinds of all fun, fun, fun stuff. stuff. <laughs> uh, and I'm working on a documentary called Beyond the Thrill, which is about skydivers. Mm-hmm. That uh, Charlie's going to score, hopefully, uh, you yep. know, uh, as well. So we got a lot of Charlie time in my near future. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, I like that uh, you said you got, like, how many GoPros on a, a plane? I think, like, six, maybe? Yeah. On the outside of the plane? Um, or... Somewhere on the outside and somewhere on the inside. Hmm. So. That's cool. It's like, I hope this doesn't fall. It's <laughs> be bad but no, yeah I mean, they were they were very secured we tied them and suctioned them and taped them and and uh and then i'm also just trying to write a lot i have a short script that's done another short that i'm writing and i also have a feature script that i'm writing hmm. so that's i haven't uh, heard about this my pitch is it's a suburban lord of the flies Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fun well thanks again jason Thanks, Charlie. Yep. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Jason Schumacher. You can check out all his films and music videos at jasonschumacher.com, or you can find his EP Dumpster Baby at panic-heart.bandcamp.com. Our question of the week is, what's your favorite film score and why? Join the discussion at forum.composerquest.com. Now it's time for another I thought I'd pick apart a bit of my score for Jason Schumacher's short film Sad Clown. We decided to go with mostly existing classical themes for the score, since the film is a nostalgic story about circuses and clowns, if that's something you get nostalgic for. Although recordings of classical music aren't in the public domain, the music itself is, as long as it was written before 1923. So I could safely reuse these classical themes by creating my own recordings. I decided to go with a mix of synths and real instruments, and as Jason requested, I avoided anything that would sound overtly circusy. In the first scene, the formerly happy clown is carefully painting a tear and a frown on his face. I used the melody from The Swan by Camille Saint-Saëns for this bittersweet scene. First, I grabbed a MIDI file of the harp part and started building up different sounds playing these arpeggios. I used a music box, a keyboard sound, toy bells, and I also added a real ukulele for human touch. Here's what all these arpeggio parts sound like together. Next, I added some effects to blend them all together. I used some very mild distortion and equalization to bring out the mid-tones, and I added quite a bit of reverb. I then added some ambient synth pads and sparkly bell flourishes.
now it was time to record the main melody. I figured that a synth part couldn't capture all the emotion in the melody, which was originally written for cello. So I decided to use a mixture of violin, clarinet, and bassoon. I'm not the best violinist, so having multiple violin parts helps create the illusion that I'm actually good. And extra reverb doesn't hurt either. Clarinetist Mary Beth Hutland and bassoonist Maya Heyman from the Twin Cities Trio helped perform the rest of the melody. It worked pretty nicely as a call and response between the two of them. If you're on a deadline and don't have time to compose a film score from scratch, you might consider using classical themes. If you can find MIDI files for them, it makes the process even quicker. I'd recommend looking for MIDI files created by actual performers versus robotic files generated from notation software. You can also play around with the tempo of these MIDI files, like I did towards the end of this scene, to make it sound a little more natural or, like in my case, I wanted it to sound like a music box coming to a halt. Before I play my full arrangement, I want to mention that you can find all of my music production lessons at composerquest.com cmpl, or just search for Charlie's Music Production Lessons in iTunes. Jason's short film, Sad Clown, is still being shown at festivals, so it won't be online for a little while. But stay in touch with Jason at jasonschumacher.com to be notified about the screenings. Now here's the opening of Sad Clown. <laughs> 